This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, I'm Joan Newberger, editor of Not Even Past, and your host today for this episode of 15-Minute History. We are actually doing something different today because this is our first Skype episode. Today's episode is about the oil crisis in the 1970s, and our guest is Christopher Dietrich. Chris got his PhD in history at the University of Texas at Austin in 2012, and he's now an assistant professor at Fordham University. Hi, Chris. Hi, Joan. How's it going? Good. So let's get started right away. All um, right. Chris, can you start off by telling us a little bit about what the energy crisis was? Yeah, sure. Uh, so to answer that question, I, I think it's probably best to take a quick look at three distinct but interrelated uh, sort of coaxial cables that run through the 20th century and see how they all get twisted together in late 1973, uh, in particular in between October 1973 and March 1974. Uh, so the first of these cables is essentially economic, uh, driven by the balance of supply and demand in the international economy. Uh, the second is essentially, and I say essentially because these do overlap, uh, the politics and the economics, the second is essentially political, uh, but on an international scale. And here we're looking at the power of the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, uh, to manipulate supply and therefore control the price of oil. Uh, the third cable is also essentially political, uh, but it exists on the regional level of the Middle East. Uh, and it's important here, as we discuss this for the next 15 minutes or so, to differentiate between the third cable, uh, which is shaped largely by the organization of Arab petroleum exporting countries, and the first two. Uh, another way to think about this is to say that the Arab oil boycott of 1973 and the energy crisis are not synonyms. Uh, the Arab boycott has to do with the supply of oil to the supporters of Israel, uh, namely the United States and Portugal, uh, whose decrepit dictatorship, on a side note, uh, allowed Henry Kissinger to strong-arm it into assisting in a weapons airlift to the Israeli Defense Forces in the middle of October. This Arab oil boycott involves the Arab members of OPEC. So here we're thinking about the usual suspects, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Iraq, Libya, uh, Algeria, the United Arab Emirates, but we're not thinking about the other members of OPEC, uh, right? The non-Arab members, Venezuela, Iran, Indonesia, and Nigeria. Uh, so now that we have that context, we can look at, I guess, what we could call the immediate cause of the energy crisis. Um, and this was the Yom Kippur War. Uh, so, upon the first shots of that war, October 6th, 1973, the Arab oil producers hastily convened at the Sheridan in Kuwait and announced the imposition of production cuts, an embargo on the United States, and a price increase uh, from $3 to $5 a barrel of oil. Uh, and this regional cable was quickly wound up with the international ones in part because OPEC already had engaged in a series of price increases between September 1970 and September 1973. 
Um, and in fact, just the month before the Yom Kippur War, the OPEC nations had already extracted an additional 70% price increase uh, from the multinational oil corporations. Uh, so in October 1973, the non-Arab members see what the Arab members are doing, and they think this is a good idea. And so they also increase prices. And they do so intermittently until agreeing in January of 1974 to freeze the price of oil uh, per barrel at $11.65. So the energy crisis, in short, is the fact that in the course of just three months, the global price of oil had more than quadrupled. Mm -hmm. Well, so this is also a period when um, the energy crisis helped spur, in some ways, the um, environmental movement too, right? As people began to realize that um, consumption of fuel was limited and um, it was going to be necessary to take better care of the of the planet. Still a, a subject that's still contentious today. Right, it is. And, and that works in, in different directions really interestingly. You, you do have this increased sense of conservation, uh, the idea of fossil fuels or unrenewable resources uh, are, are terms that become more and more popular in this time period. But you also have this drive on the part of the energy companies to find new resources of oil that aren't owned by the OPEC nations. So you have drilling in Prudhoe Bay in Alaska, in the Gulf of Mexico. You have the Athabasca tar sands in Canada. You have the North Sea, the oil from the North Sea come online, all of which the environmental movement is not really that on board with uh, mm -hmm. in, an, in, an interesting, in an interesting turn. Mm -hmm. Well, let's turn to um, some of the diplomatic issues. Sure. So the, the conflict started really in the Middle East when Middle Eastern OPEC nations realized that they had a weapon in oil a source of leverage. So tell us something about the diplomacy of oil prices. You're a diplomatic historian, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, first off, we need to distinguish, too, in between uh, even more fine-tuned among the oil producers, in between the Middle Eastern oil producers and the Arab oil producers, because uh, at this point, Iran and Israel are still allies in the Middle East, and Iran actually supplies Israel with almost all of its oil until the 1979 revolution. Um, there are a lot of different strains of diplomacy here, uh, so I'll just center in on a couple that look really at uh, first at the Arabs and then at the broader diplomacy of, the, of oil prices. Uh, the Arab oil weapon uh, is actually really useful in some ways. Uh, the goal here is to change different nations' position on the Israel-Palestine problem. Uh, and in October 1973, fear of the so-called Arab oil weapon does affect the diplomacy of American allies, of U.S. allies, uh, and formerly Israeli allies, in Europe and Asia. Uh, France, to avoid being subjected to the same type of supply cuts that the United States was subjected to, France sells weapons to Libya and Saudi Arabia, which they know are being transferred to Egypt, uh, and Great Britain ships arms to the Arabs and actually leaves contractual obligations to Israel unfulfilled. Uh, and Japan and the European community uh, do, similar, do similar things, but in the realm of public diplomacy, calling on Israel to withdraw to its pre-1967 borders. And as a result, uh, these nations are excluded from the boycott. Uh, but of course, no one could really be immune to the price increases. And on a deeper level, the, uh, the diplomacy of the price increases is connected to the rise of energy consumption in the West because this 
sort of energy-intensive lifestyle was understood as central to the success of liberal capitalism. And the oil companies, of course, themselves uh, promoted this. They thought they had essentially an endless supply of oil. Uh, but at the same time, the OPEC nations, beginning in 1960, are waging a campaign to try to wrest uh, pricing and production control from the grip of the so-called Seven Sisters, the multinational oil companies. Um, and that's part of a broader third world uh, issue that has to do with the history of, of imperialism, of an unjust, oppressive past. And uh, this a, is an interesting... The colonial past. You yeah, the colonial, the colonial past. Uh, and this was a political issue that really united a lot of people that really hated each other otherwise. Uh, for example, Iran and Iraq. Uh, throughout the war from, in Iran and Iraq from 1980 to 1988, in which I think like one and a quarter million people were killed, representatives of both governments not only continued to go to OPEC meetings... Uh, but they even sat next to each other uh, because of alphabetical order. But <laughs> so, how how was Israel involved in all of this? Uh, in October 1973, mostly as a catalyst, uh, as a participant in this uh, in this war. But there are historians who have looked at the longer links between the Arab-Israeli conflict and oil in in the Middle East. As you know, conflict between Israel and its Arab neighbors began even before the new state of Israel was formed in, the May, in May of 1948. And that conflict had taken sort of overt war form a number of times uh, in 1948 itself, during the 56 Suez crisis, uh, and uh, also in the brief but really uh, highly significant six-day war in June 1967. Uh, and that war, which resulted in a humiliating defeat for the Arab frontline states uh, and led to uh, the Israeli occupation of substantial Arab territory was also important for the link uh, between the question of Palestine and oil. Uh, and essentially what happened was after uh, the Six-Day War, the Arab heads of state got together in Khartoum uh, and they agreed that the oil producers, uh, and in this period it was Saudi Arabia, Libya, Kuwait, and Iraq, uh, it was agreed that they would bankroll Palestinian resistance uh, to uh, what they considered Israeli occupation. And this is a role, uh, this use of oil money uh, for the uh, Palestinian cause uh, is a role that uh, will have great endurance. Well, how does the United States respond to the rise in oil prices and the, the assumption of, of power that the OPEC nations took during this period? What did the U.S. do? Uh, so, if you read uh, Henry Kissinger's memoirs, and, and Kissinger, by this point, uh, is the Secretary of State. Um, if you read his memoirs, you'd get the idea that he had everything under control from the word go uh, in October of 1973. Uh, but if you look at the documents, and just as an aside here, uh, the papers that Kissinger illegally took from the State Department when he left in 1977 are still under lock and key and not available to historians. <laughs> uh, but if you look at those documents, uh, uh, or what we think are similar documents to those documents that are actually declassified, uh, there's a really shake, a much shakier story that, that emerges. 
in short, what Kissinger does is he uses his sort of totemic celebrity status as uh, the world's great statesman to demonize OPEC. Uh, not the Arab oil producers, just OPEC in general. Uh, he paints with a broad brush as an illiberal boogeyman uh, that is against the proper functioning of the free market. Uh, and he also makes a parallel argument that the free market was the only system that was capable of meeting the global economic challenge of expensive oil. Uh, and this is really interesting because uh, this sort of argument that the high prices were artificial, uh, that they were political decisions that didn't have economic viability, uh, plays into the sense of vulnerability that I was mentioning, I was mentioning earlier. And you have actual government officials uh, sort of uh, fear-mongering uh, in epic uh, or even cosmic proportions. At one point, Kissinger accuses OPEC of holding the industrialized world in strangulation. Um, which I'm not even sure is a word. <laughs> uh, but my favorite example is Gerald Ford, uh, President Ford's Bicentennial State of the Union Address, where he compares energy independence, uh, this plan that he's picked up from Nixon, to independence from Great Britain. <laughs> uh, it's, that, it's that important. Okay, so um, what happens? How, does, uh, how do the Western oil companies reclaim control over pricing and um, what, what are the sort of longer-term effects of the oil crisis? Well, the, the Western nations uh, or the Western companies never really regain control of, of pricing. Um, they are, uh, in, this, in this same time period, the OPEC nations have been uh, nationalizing, some, some partially through what's called participation and some, some outright, uh, the actual production facilities in the oil fields uh, in, in those nations. Um, the Western companies stay on as service providers, and they actually really benefit from high oil prices, as you can imagine. They just pass most of the cost on to the consumer, and their profit margins are at record levels in the mid-1970s, so much so that they're accused uh, by a number of senators as being OPEC tax collectors. Mm. Uh, but um, if, these sort of, if this application of uh, sovereignty was profitable for the OPEC nations, uh, it, was only so, it was only that way until the mid-1980s, mid uh, because uh, in a certain way, OPEC was a victim of its own success. Uh, as the prices went up, uh, it made it more profitable for the Seven Sisters, the big multinational companies, as well as, well as smaller companies, to begin to develop what the industry called traditional alternatives. And these are the ones, uh, the sources that I was talking to you about a little bit earlier, um, that were previously considered uneconomic. So the, again, the Gulf of Mexico, the Nor North Sea, Alaska, the tar sands. Um, and by 1982, 83, 84, uh, non-OPEC producers have put enough oil online that prices begin to go down. Uh, supply and demand line up again, and uh, prices begin to be pushed, pushed down. Uh, this causes a lot of damage for the OPEC nations, uh, who've sort of planned their, uh, their fiscal spending with certain prices in mind. 
But most of the damage is done not to the OPEC nations or to the Western industrial nations. Most of the damage is done to the poorest nations who were really powerless in the face of high oil prices uh, and the financial corollary of those high oil prices, uh, which are huge balance of payments deficits and eventually sovereign, sovereign debt. Um, so the poorest nations in this period are rechristened the NOPEX. And, and who are really, they? Uh, this is the great number of uh, lesser developed nations in, in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, we can think here that the number is probably over uh, you know, 130. Uh -huh. um, and they're categorized in different ways by, uh, by different groups. Uh, but mostly they're called either the poor nations, the hardest hit, or, or the NOPEX. Uh, and in the wake of uh, the Ford administration's emphasis on the free market, what I call neoliberal diplomacy, the funding to cover their balance of payments problems uh, that had to do with high oil prices, that development funding takes the form of private loans from uh, banks on Wall Street in the city of London, offshore, offshore banks. And by the late 1970s, analysts at the International Monetary Fund are arguing that this exposure to commercial credit uh, is going to have a drastic negative effect on their development and is really going to increase the likelihood of sovereign defaults, uh, which isn't something that the international financial system had ever really dealt with and actually comes true in 1982 when Mexico, one of these new oil producers had, that had taken out a lot of loans to increase their production based on the idea that prices were going to stay up, uh, when their sort of financial house of cards falls in, uh, they default on, I think, something like $75 billion of debt. Uh, and it causes a spiraling banking crisis across, across the world. So who are the winners of the OPEC oil crisis? That's a really good question. Uh, I want to say nobody, <laughs> but I would say the oil companies mm -hmm. themselves uh, probably make out, make out the best. Uh, their profits are, are just through the roof. Um, afterwards, and they're able to use their advanced technological skill to gain access to other to other sources um, that were not available before. Uh, the OPEC nations, some of the OPEC nations, of course, make out make out very well, but that depends on which on which nations. The nations with larger populations uh, that spend more of their money on development programs uh, don't do as well as the smaller uh, the smaller Arab, Arab nations like Saudi Arabia, uh, Kuwait, or the or the Emirates. Mm -hmm. So one last question. Sure. Um, oil prices have gone way up in the last decade and a half. Um, is that connected in any way to the diplomatic and political and economic uh, issues that we've been talking about, or is this a whole new environment? Uh, I think yes and no. It's it's connected because the actors are the same, and a lot of them have memories of this, and some of them even share the same politics uh, as some of the actors in the 1970s did. Uh, think about Hugo Chavez uh, before before he died and his use of uh, of oil as a political as a political weapon to both reward 
reward and punish. Um, and that did have an effect on oil prices. But now, the, uh, as far as I understand it, Saudi Arabia is the real swing producer. And they were in the 1970s. They were in the 1970s as well. Uh, but then uh, they weren't at full production capacity. And now I think they're pretty close to full production capacity. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Chris, very much. Yes, you're welcome. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-minute history. That's the numerals 1-5-minute history. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-minute history do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.